So how many notifications, alerts, warnings do you think you get a day? Probably a lot. Your phone, your iPad, your computer, your watch, your food, your beverages, the radio, the television were bombarded with warnings. At some point, we stop listening. It's nothing more than background noise. I mean, honestly, how many of you this morning drove here in a car with the check engine light on? And you're just pretending it isn't on. What does the tornado siren mean in Nebraska? It means run out in the yard and see if you can see it. But here's the deal. At some point, you're going to ignore a warning. And the consequence will be devastating. That's what we want to talk about. If you have a Bible, turn with us to Hebrews chapter 5. So the writer of Hebrews has introduced this concept of Jesus as the priest or the high priest. In chapter 1, he didn't use the word, but he clearly communicated that. Jesus made purification for sin, returned to the Father, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And then we were introduced to the concept of Jesus as the ultimate high priest who made propitiation for sin. Then last week, Jesus is the high priest who's not, uh, he's not unsympathetic with the pain and the struggles and trials that we go through. So now, starting in chapter 5, and this will be a lengthy conversation into multiple chapters, uh, which really is kind of the heartbeat of the book of Hebrews, is Jesus as the priest and the high priest and the details related to that. So in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, are just general qualifications for a high priest. For every high priest taken from among men is taken, uh, men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So it's a human representing other humans before a holy God to make sacrifice for sin. That's verse 1. Verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. The word gently is an interesting Greek word. A lot of scholars refer to it as a philosopher's term. Had the idea of someone who is not indifferent toward sin, but also someone who is not harsh, does not go off on the sinner. So the idea of of gentleness, control. And the reason is because the high priest himself is a sinner, beset with weaknesses, surrounded by his own weaknesses. So that's what verse 2 says. The idea of ignorant and misguided 
is language that comes from the Old Covenant law. That if your behavior was out of ignorance or was misguided, meaning out of confusion, there was a sacrifice made for your sin. But the Old Covenant law also said if your sin was willful, if it was intentional, if it was rebellious, there was no sacrifice for sin. That's why Paul, in the book of Acts, in a sermon, clearly identifies that today in the New Covenant, that the sacrifice of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, even covers willful, rebellious sin. It's another reminder why the new covenant is so far superior to the old covenant. Verse 3, And because of it, because of his own sin, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. So if you go back in the book of Leviticus, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was required to sacrifice a bull for his own sins. And only then could he enter into the Holy of Holies behind the veil and offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. Verse 4, no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So verse 4 is saying, someone can't just decide, I want to be a high priest. You don't just apply for the job and go through an interview process. You had to be appointed by God, chosen by God. And he uses Aaron as the example of that. Eventually, after Aaron, it would become the tribe of Levi. But to be a high priest, you were specifically chosen by God. So to put all that together, it was a human that was called to represent his fellow humans before a holy God to make sacrifice for their sins. He would respond to sinners with gentleness because he himself is a sinner. Therefore, he would have to offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as the sins of the people, and the high priest was appointed by God himself. So now starting in verse 5, it's how Christ then fits that description. And essentially it works its way backwards. It starts from verse 4 and works backward up to verse 1. So also Christ. So the writer of Hebrews uses names very strategically. So when he was talking about the creator God, he talked about the Son, chapter 1. And the Son has come and and taken on human flesh. When he's talking about God in the flesh on earth, he has used the name Jesus. Now he's talking about someone who is anointed or appointed by God and uses the name Christ. This is the first time he uses this name, which is a title. The Greek word means anointed one, Christos. So Jesus didn't choose himself. Jesus is the chosen one, the anointed one of God. So also Christ did not glorify himself or choose himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son. So he's quoting Psalm 2. We saw this in chapter 1. Just a reminder, for example, at the baptism of Jesus, God the Father basically quoted these words, Thou art my Son. So God the Father chose Jesus. Today I have begotten or chosen you. 
verse 6, just as, uh, as he says also in another passage, which is Psalm 110, you are a priest forever. Now, he has talked about Jesus as the high priest in that particular term. He's also talked about Jesus making purification for sin, which is priestly duty, but this is the first time he's used the Greek word for priest. Now, one of the reasons that's significant is because in the entire New Testament, that term is used 31 times, 14 of those times in the book of Hebrews. So it's a significant term that goes to the core theology of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is that ultimate mediator between a holy God and sinful men and women. We learned in chapter 1, Jesus wasn't the next word from God. He's the last word of God. There's no successor after Jesus. He completed the assignment and he sat down. Every priest before him was merely a shadow, a foreshadowing of the ultimate priest to come. And so because of that, Jesus now sits as priest forever meaning there's no one to follow him. There's no successor. There is no need for a priest today. There is no human mediator between a a holy God and sinful people. Jesus finished the work. He's the priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek. So those of you that are young couples, still in your childbearing years, again, a name to put on the list, possible name for one of your children. Come here, little Melchizedek. Melchizedek's uh, a mysterious figure in the Bible. Uh, He'll get discussed quite a bit in the chapters to come. In the Old Testament, he shows up in two places. In Psalm 110, which this is quoting, and the other is Genesis chapter 14. Uh, Melchizedek really comes out of nowhere. He's the king of Salem. He rescues Abraham. As a result of that, Abraham pays him a gift, a tithe. Melchizedek then blesses Abraham, and Abraham receives the blessing, therefore affirming that Melchizedek is both a king and a priest. We know nothing about those who came before him. We know nothing about those who succeeded him. He just comes out of nowhere and is a king priest. And that is the order of Melchizedek, and there'll be a lot more discussion about that in uh, the weeks to come. Starting in verse 7, then, he turns to the idea that Jesus was indeed human, one of these qualifications. In the days of his flesh, as a human, he offered up, that's priestly language, both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. Now, those terms are very graphic, loud crying and tears. Most scholars, for sure, root this to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus agonized. He agonized over the reality that soon he would hang on a cross and take the sins of the world upon himself. The ultimate agony was not the physical suffering, as horrendous as that was, but rather the fact that a holy God would take upon himself the sins of the world. 
he would indeed be the recipient of the wrath of God in order to satisfy the wrath of God to offer salvation, to make propitiation for sin, as we learned about. It's specifically stated when Jesus says to the Father, uh, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Cup is Old Testament prophetic language for the wrath of God. That's what he was agonizing over. But at the end of that, said, not, not my will, but thy will be done. But it's also true that many scholars think there's no reason to limit these words to Gethsemane. Oftentimes in the Gospels, we're told that Jesus went away by himself to pray. And most likely, those were times of agony. Those were times of loud crying and pain. Imagine what it would be like to walk through this world as the creator who had taken on human flesh. You understand what paradise was supposed to be. You saw it when you created it. You understand what you intended for people made in your image. And yet what you see is pain and suffering and hate and despair and all that he encountered. What would it be like to experience all that as the creator and the devastation and destruction to your creation? So think of it this way. For those of us who are parents, the deepest pain that we ever feel is when we watch our children suffer. I would take it on myself a hundred times over if I could take my kids' pain on myself. Every parent feels that way. So imagine what it would be like if every single person in the world had that level of connection to you as the creator. Every one of these people is my child. I created them on purpose for a purpose. And so the level of devastation, the level of heartache, the level of pain, the level of hatred, the level of rejection, and each one of those feels like your own child. Imagine what that would be like. And these moments where Jesus would pull away with the Father and just cry out and agonize over what he was experiencing. It's easy for us to convince ourselves we've experienced far more pain and suffering than Jesus did. That concept is ludicrous. We get the slightest taste of the level of pain and devastation Jesus must have felt on earth. And that's what this is referring to. Fully human in every way, but feeling the suffering and the struggle of this world. With supplication and loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, probably better translated, out of death. Jesus did die, but he rose from the dead, saved out of death. And he was heard. The Greek word for heard doesn't just mean heard. It means heard in the sense of answered. The father heard his prayer and the father delivered him out of death. Heard because of his Piety, because of his devotion to the cause, which is what he talks about then in verse 8. Although he was a son. Now just stop and think about this for a minute. Let's imagine you don't know the story of Jesus at all. What the writer is saying is, imagine God 
sending his son to take on human flesh on earth. Knowing that's who it is, what would you expect? Where would you expect him to be born? Where would you expect him to live? How would you expect the world to receive him? If we didn't really know the Jesus story, we'd think probably born in a palace, live in a mansion, travel in a limousine, be like a rock star with huge cheering crowds everywhere he would go, lots of security to keep people back so no one could touch him. That's what we would expect. He was the son. That's what he means. Although he was the son, that's what you'd expect. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Again, the language can get confusing. It doesn't mean he was disobedient and learned to obey, but learned means experienced. In other words, he didn't talk about obedience. He obeyed. He didn't talk about suffering. He suffered. It wasn't just that he was willing to obey or willing to suffer. He actually did obey. He actually did suffer. Verse 9, in having been made perfect, complete, having finished the assignment, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So as a result of his completing that mission, as the ultimate high priest making the ultimate sacrifice, he has become the source of eternal salvation. Now, the writer of Hebrews has been very clear on this, that to disbelieve is to disobey. Therefore, to believe is to obey. So when he says here, those who obey, he's saying those who believe. As we learned last week, those that cease from their own self-righteous works and rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, experience his salvation. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So this gets complex. There's a lot more to talk about, which we will in the weeks to come. But now the writer interrupts this conversation for what people refer to as the third warning of the book of Hebrews. Warning number one, chapter two, verse one. Pay more attention to the truth, lest you drift away. That was the warning. Anchor down to the truth or you're going to drift away. Second warning was the cost of disbelief. If you don't believe God tells the truth, Disbelief leads to disobedience, and you're going to make a mess of your life. So this is the third warning. Verse 11, concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Why? Since you have become dull of hearing. Now, dull of hearing has nothing to do with intelligence, nothing to do with intelligence. Dull of hearing means lazy. It means unmotivated. It means indifferent. It means they just don't really care. They're not listening to what he has to say. So the concern is there's so much more you need to know, but you're not interested. Now, sometimes people are dull of hearing 
because they are lazy. Sometimes it's because people don't care. They've got 101 other things they're far more interested in. Got my ticket to heaven, it's all I need. But it's also true that some people are dull of hearing because they're mad at God. They're mad at God because the story hasn't gone the way they think it should. Therefore, I'm ticked off at God. I don't want to hear what he has to say. It'd be like you being mad at me this morning and say, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to listen. I'm mad at you. That's how a lot of people respond to God. Out of their frustration and their anger, they're dull of hearing. Don't want to hear it. Whatever the cause, that's the concern. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, enough time has passed, they ought to be teaching the new, young, growing believers. You ought to be teachers, but you have need again. So they've been taught this before, and now they have need to be taught it again. You have need again for someone to teach you. The elementary principles, the ABCs of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. So he's saying, you're still babies. You're still infants. All you can eat is milk. By now, you should be eating solid food, but actually all you can eat is milk because you're still spiritual babies. It is a reminder that just because you've been a Christian for 20 years, doesn't mean you're spiritually mature. I meet Christians that have been Christians for 20 years. They're still babies. I've met other Christians who have been Christians for two years, and they're very mature. There isn't some magic to it. You don't just automatically mature. That's what he's saying. They've been taught the basics, the ABCs, the most elementary principles of this deep, rich theology that defines uh, their life, but they don't listen, they don't want to hear it, and so he has to teach it to them again. In the preaching world, we have kind of these three levels that we think about. Level number one is understanding. Does somebody understand this truth? If not, then I need to explain it. Second level is they understand it, but they don't really believe it. So then I have to prove it or defend it in some way, help them to believe it. And once we believe it, then we need to live it. And sometimes we just have, have to help people understand what does that look like in life. But there's a realization that nobody's going to live what they don't believe, and they can't really believe it if they don't understand it. So we're trying to think through where we're at in the process with, uh, with all of these truths. The challenge is what's happened to the American church is in order to cater to the consumers, we've kind of skipped the understanding and the believing and we've gone right to the living. And so what you get is not a deep, rich theology. What you get is more of kind of a pop psychology that is more like behavior modification. It's like external kind of these management systems. So it's five ways to fix your marriage. It's three ways to raise your kid. It's 10 ways to get over anxiety. It's three ways to be happy. It's stuff like that. So rather than this deep, rich theology that's understood and then believed 
and then life flows out of that, it's more an attempt to just modify behavior. We as fundamentalists historically have struggled with this. That's where legalism comes from. Rather than teaching the truth, understand it, believe it, and then live it out, we skip one and two and we go right to here's the rules, here's the lists, here's the do's and don'ts, and here's how you're supposed to live. And rather than it being an outflow of life, it's just kind of an attempt to modify behavior. So think of it this way. How many Christians do you think attend church regularly and seek to live out the expected behavior of a Christian but would have virtually no idea how to go into the Scriptures and explain and defend why we live the way we live? I would suggest it's probably pretty high. There's nothing more powerful than understanding these magnificent truths and then believing them, and then that changes the way we live our lives. Think of it this way. How many people in the room this morning spend way too much time in the dark room? Day after day, shame, guilt, fear, anxiety, despair, hopelessness, day after day after day after day. When everything's driven on the basis of behavior modification, when that behavior doesn't measure up, you go straight to the dark room. But because you don't really understand the deep, rich theology that sets us free, you live in bondage. If you really understood the truth, if you understood the ABCs, if you understand really what God has done for us, you wouldn't live that way. You would understand that when you know the truth, the truth sets you free. But you have to be motivated. You have to want to learn. You have to want to grow. You have to want to understand it and be set free from that which holds us in bondage. That's what he's talking about. Verse 13, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed, has not experienced to the word of righteousness, for he is an, an infant. In other words, spiritual infants really don't know how to live righteously because they're still infants. So think of it this way. How much care, guidance, and attention do infants require? Answer is a lot. That's what makes parenting so exhausting. You can't just turn them loose. You have to watch over them. You have to protect them. You have to guide them. You can't just send them out the front door for several hours. How many parents in the room would drop your five-year-old off at the mall and say, I'll be back in three or four hours. They're just simply not equipped for that. The world is a scary place. It's a dangerous place. There's so many things that could happen. 
That's the problem with a young child or an infant. They're just not mature enough to understand the world and to navigate their way through it. It's exactly what he's saying. When spiritually you're still a baby, you don't really understand how to navigate your way through a very dangerous world. It's only a matter of time till you make a mess of your life. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice, very interesting word, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. This is typically not how we think of spiritual growth. We think of it like some mysterious thing that you walked in the building and there's some Jesus cloud that settles on you and you walk out the door more spiritual than when you uh, walk through the door. But what that verse is saying is very practical. You learn it, you understand it, you practice it. You're trained in it. It's a word used to describe an athlete or, or like a musician practicing. That doesn't happen magically. You learn it, you practice it, you get better at it, you learn how to discern better between good and evil. So then you learn a little bit more and you practice it and you get better at it. And then you learn a little bit more, and you practice, and you train. That's how you grow spiritually. But you have to be motivated to listen, and to learn, and to practice, and to train in order to get better and better. To not do that, to ignore the warning, is to just bide your time until you eventually make a mess out of your life. So let me illustrate it this way. About uh, 18 years ago, Patty and I moved out to the country, and uh, I saw it as an opportunity to buy a horse. I am a cowboy wannabe. Not a cowboy, I'm a cowboy wannabe. And so we got a couple of old, safe horses, and that was great. And then we went with some friends. Kim was going to pick out a yearling and raise it, train it, break it herself. That's all I needed that day to be exposed to going, picking one out, bringing it home, where I remember saying at the end of that day, I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to get my own yearling, and I want to train it and break it myself. Well, what do you know about horses? Nothing. Absolutely nothing, but I want to. So I did. I bought a yearling, understanding this is 1,200 pounds of raw muscle. They can hurt you badly. But it's like, I want to do this. So I just talked to friends. I read books. I watched videos. I went to clinics. What would take a good horseman probably weeks took me months and months to do. But it was one step at a time. And so I'd learn it, I'd figure it out, I'd go out, I'd practice, I'd do it. And once I thought I had it, I'd go to the next thing. I'd learn it, I'd practice it, I'd do it until I had it figured out, I'd go to the next thing. Step by step by step by step. If something didn't work, I'd go back Figure it out, learn some more, figure it out step by step. There is this unbelievably wondrous 
moment. When you climb on the back of this 1,200-pound horse, and you know that you are the first human being ever to sit on this magnificent animal. There are not many things in life like that. It is an absolutely glorious moment. He's a great horse. I still ride him every week today. But that's what the process looks like. It's not magic. It's not mystical. It doesn't just happen because you walk through the doors. It's learn it, practice it, train and get better in it, then learn some more, practice it, train in it, get better, layer upon layer upon layer until you have this deep, rich theology that drives how you live every single day. There is no way in your most difficult moments in life that Christ will be enough for you if you do not understand the ABCs, the elementary principles of life. He is enough. You just won't know it. You won't get it. If we don't listen to the warning, if we don't take it seriously and continue to grow as believers, we simply lack the maturity we need to live righteously in a very confusing and dangerous world. If you don't listen to the warning, it's only a matter of time until you make a big mess of your life. So the only question we have left this morning is, will you listen to the warning? Our Father, we are thankful that you have warned us, but she's also not left us to just struggle in the darkness. You've given us the truth. If we're willing to listen and learn and practice and train and grow. And my prayer is that we would have ears to hear this morning. Lest we become dull of hearing and suffer the consequences of not listening. With this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I was in seventh grade in middle school and I had found myself kicked out of class and ended up in the principal's office. The principal started to lecture me about my behavior and what I was doing. And he told me, Zach, I don't understand why people like you. You're not good at sports. You're not good in the classroom. I don't understand it. I believed what he said. And I believed it because I'd felt that many times before feeling worthless. That middle school boy grew up with a very deep wound in his heart. Fourteen was the first time I ever had a drink, 
Um, I don't know that I was self-aware that it was taking away my pain, but it made life much easier. It seemed like it made relationships easier. It made me funnier. It made me more likable. I felt like I had value. I grew up in a Christian home, so I knew what was right. I knew the gospel. I knew the truth. But I chose to drink because I felt like I could never measure up with God either. I knew he loved me enough to save me, but that was about it. I got married when I was 20 years old, and I had an opportunity to kind of face things at that point in life. Um, I was married in marriage counseling with Brian, and I remember him specifically asking me if there was any drugs or alcohol. Um, and I told him no. The reason I said that was because of two things. Guilt, because I knew what I was doing was wrong. And shame, because I couldn't stop and there was something wrong with me. I was always afraid of being exposed for being who I thought I was, which was not good. And... Being exposed as worthless. After 11 years of guilt, shame, and lies, my marriage failed. It got so bad that I quit eating for 10 days and all I did was drink until the point I woke up one Monday morning and I couldn't function anymore, and I couldn't go to work. And so I desperately, by a miracle, God just reached out to my brother, came down and said, what do you need? And I said, I don't know, I just need somewhere safe. And he took me to the hospital. The day in the hospital, I found out I was 0.4 blood alcohol content. That is 500% over the legal limit. I should have been dead a long time ago. I didn't know what to do, but I would, was willing to do anything it took not to drink another drop. So once again, I find myself in Brian Clark's office. And I'm there with my sponsor, a counselor, and my boss. And the question is posed if this is the last house on the block for Zach. Meaning if I go out and drink again, am I going to have a job? Am I going to be employed at Berean anymore? And Brian interrupted me. And he said, no, we're not going to look at it that way because Zach is worth it. And when he said that, it was a really real thing for me. Um, a tangible moment that I grabbed a hold of. I really understood God's love for me in that moment. That if I would screw up again, he wasn't going to give up on me. And he didn't love me because of what I did. He loved me because... 
I'm his. And it's just a moment I look back to when times get hard that I reach back for that because that's the truth that I live out today. That God is enough, that he loves me just because he does. It's been eight years since I've had a drink and that's a miracle. Recovery from alcohol is hard work and it takes time. The warning signs are a lot easier to spot and I can choose to believe God's truth a lot faster today, but ultimately I still have to make that choice. I can choose to do things my own way and believe that God's lying to me. And I know where that leads. Or I can choose to believe that I'm valuable and I'm worth it. And choose to believe what God says is true and that he loves me.